Welcome to Off the Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera, and each episode I sit down with a member of the water polo community to speak with them about what helped make them successful in the world of water polo. In this episode, we sat down with Ken Hamdor, legendary coach from Golden West Community College. If you enjoy the episode, do me a favor, leave a five-star review or share it with your friends. And if you want to support the show, you can go to offthedeckpodcast.com and donate to the program. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Off the Deck. Uh, I have the honor and the pleasure uh, of speaking to a legend of our sport. His name is Ken Hamdorf, and he was the Golden West water polo coach for several years. Um, We're going to get into his entire resume here uh, throughout the podcast, but uh, I wanted to just do some brief highlights here before we get started. First of all, Coach, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate you being on the line. Love to do it. Thank you. Um, So uh, some some brief highlights, and then we'll get into more specifics here. Um, You were elected into the USA Water Polo Hall of Fame in 2000. Uh, You were also elected into the California Community College Water Polo Hall of Fame in 2002. Uh, You got a lifetime coaching award from uh, Community College in 2009. Um, You were named the Community Community College Coach of the Year five times, and you won the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2012. Um, Some of the, you know, those were those are some of the honors that you've received, but some of the, just some of the overall records are are just amazing and impressive um you're a head coach at golden west and uh you won seven uh you won seven southern california championships as well as nine straight uh, state championships which is unheard of on any level um you were you were the head coach there from 86 to 1999 and you won 21 conference championships you only lost 46 games. Uh, you won 425. Um, and you, you, were, you coached about 47 All-Americans. Uh, eight players went on to be Olympians, from, not just from the United States, but from different countries. Uh, and not just from water polo, but also for swimming. So there are a ton of achievements that I can keep naming, which we'll get into as long uh, as long as I have you here. But um, I wanted to first ask you, how did you get involved with the sport of water polo and in coaching? Well, I started out, first of all, I, I grew up in, in Los Angeles in what's now Watts. And uh, uh, before I get into that, I would like to, before I forget to pay tribute to my wife of 62 years, Marilyn, who's now deceased, and my two sons, Paul and Tim, who behind every coach, you've got to have family support for the time you put in and everything. And they were behind me to this day. And uh, my parents the same way. So building from that was easy when you have support. Yeah. So going from there, uh, growing up in, in L.A., I sold newspapers, I mowed lawns, and so forth. So I learned to work. And uh, I learned to swim at a public pool called Manchester Park. And I, I uh, 
kind of was self-taught. I'd go to the, in the summer to the pool, and in order to get to the deep part and jump off the platform, they didn't have diving boards, you had to be able to swim. So I watched people swim and kind of got good enough, and finally they, I, they let me jump off the, the three-meter tower, and I thought, this is, this is where I belong, in the water. And we moved to Whittier when I was in the fifth grade, and I got into swimming there at the Whittier Swim Club and at Cal High. And my first coach was uh, Don Smith from UCLA, and he had been a two-meter guard, and he taught me uh, how to become a guard. And uh, from there, I, I graduated from Cal High in Whittier and went on to, to play for Jimmy Smith at, at Fullerton College, and he was a legend then. Uh, he was uh, a graduated from Stanford. He was a Navy pilot. He had coached the U.S. Uh, military team in the Pan Ams and had produced many outstanding people. Bob Horn, who ended up coaching at Long Beach State and UCLA, yep. very famous guy, and I became very close with him when we taught at Jimmy Smith Swim School, he, along with Monty Naskowski. He was at the swim school. Mace, uh, Ace Burns, all Olympians, and boy, what a culture that was. I was a freshman at Fullerton and hanging out with those guys and talking after work and going out for a beer now and then, and uh, not not when I was 17, of course. <laughs> uh, but anyway, they left a lasting impression upon me about not only the Olympics, but about teaching. And I learned so much from those three guys. And then I went on to Cal State Long Beach. And there, Bob was a, now a graduate coach. And uh, I learned to play uh, under him. And then uh, Jim Schultz came on board. And he was from Dowdy High School, and he got the job, and he really made me blossom as a water polo player. Really uh, uh, taught me a lot of individual moves and not to be afraid to shoot, and, and a number of other things that became very valuable. Yeah. And uh, I also patterned myself after, uh, not myself, but my uh, style after, basically after Horn and John Wooden who taught nothing but fundamentals. From the day you start, you do fundamentals, and when you end the season, you're still doing some of the same fundamental drills. Yeah. Like I wouldn't used to, even at the end of the season in the NC2As, he was still doing foot drills with his players. So, uh, And I went to many of his clinics and listened to him, got some of his posters, and he was really important. And from Marty, I learned strategy. He was a great strategic coach at, at uh, Long Beach City and went on to be the Olympic coach uh, for several years. He, along with Ken Langren, a fellow teammate of mine, and they did a marvelous job. And incidentally, for no, no pay. They didn't get paid in those days for uh, uh, their work as development in, in the Olympics. That's amazing. That's... Yeah, and barely got expenses many years. The, 
remember the, the first year that we flew back to, uh, well, actually flew to Mexico City for a practice game. He made everybody get the same, buy the same suit coats and everything. In those days, when you got on an airplane, you wore a coat and tie. And that's the way the team dressed. And I learned that's very important. Those, those little things, you know, that the public sees yeah. uh, about a team. And I was able to compete in the 60 trials, named as an alternate uh, for the training team. Uh, I think I was number 12 out of 14. I didn't make the, the final cut. And then from there, and uh, I got drafted in the Army and went to the SISM games uh, during the Vietnam conflict. I got sent to the SISM games in Berlin, which uh, saved me from jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, learned a lot there, the European water polo, and then came back and trained uh, for the Olympics under Monty, in which we uh, ended up, uh, I think... Uh, Four or five of our people ended up then on the Olympic team from that year. So I got a lot out of those those years. And, uh, yeah, and, and if I could briefly interrupt, I mean, for those that don't know, Bob Horn is probably the one of the most legendary coaches out of UCLA, uh, very innovative, cutting edge. I've had a, a, an opportunity to speak to a lot of people who were around him and um, coached by him, and, and they all say sort of the same thing. And then also Monty Naskowski, who um, is another legend uh, of our sport, you know, kind of Mount Rushmore-type coaches. To be in, to be involved with those people early on, that must have really shaped what you did as as becoming or turning into a coach. I mean, that, that they must have had a lot of influence on you. No, that was a great culture, uh, and people were willing to share. Uh, I remember after the uh, 56 Olympics, and we started getting some people from, especially uh, Eastern European countries. Nick Martin came from Hungary, Arpad Damjan, uh, and some others. And uh, Bob and Monty knew these guys from previous competition. And so I was able to, you know, get in the water with these guys at uh, practice sessions. And uh, Pete, uh, or Nick Martin at the time, was probably the best player in the world. Great-looking guy, physical specimen. Ended up actually coaching at Pasadena City College for years, teaching French literature. What a man. And uh, the addition of those European players, were on influence on us uh, for many, many things. Individual moves, uh, they were smooth at, you know, and we'd get in and practice the things. Some of the drills that I used came out of the, those days. There one drill specifically was called, I called it, scatter drill, where four people would get in front of the cage and you had to move constantly and watch for the ball. And then the ball had to kept, be kept dry. And if you move the ball, and you could set it up, uh, okay, it's four passes, then a shot, or three passes, then a shot. If the ball dropped, you started all over. But you had to be moving. And it was a great drill, and 
I use that till my final days in coaching. Yeah. Just to get awareness of where the ball is, always keeping your bo- your body ready to go vertical to horizontal, horizontal to vertical. Great drill. That came out of those uh, those the Europeans, the European influence. Wow. Uh, when we talk later about uh, U.S. water polo and all, I I have some real criticism about what's going on now with. I love foreign athletes, but I have some some reservations. So. Yeah, and so let's you know let's kind of transition into uh, your coaching your coaching time. I mean, you spent a brief time <clears throat> at Westminster Lakewood for a uh, for a nine ten years, and then you made the jump to Long Beach Wilson for a year, and then you ended up at Golden West College. So. By the time you got to Golden West, uh, it it looks like you had been you were coaching for about fourteen years or so. Once you got to Golden West College, is that is that right? About yeah, yes, yes. And when I came on at Lakewood, they had never won a uh, conference championship. They'd never been in the CIF. I'm talking varsity wise. Yeah, never been in the CIF playoffs. And remember, in those days, CIF was one playoff for all of Southern California. That's it. There was not like today where there's three or four different divisions. There's one division. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the first year, uh, we didn't do too well. That was 66. 67, we got a little better. By 68, the kids understood where we were headed. And uh, we ended up that year playing Corona Del Mar. Playing Corona Del Mar three times and each time we learned a little bit more the first time i think we lost 13 to 3 or something like that and we uh, we learned from them we watched them over the summer and i tried to devise some defenses that i thought might work against them we ended up they were touted as number 1 newport touted as number 1 in in uh Orange County, as that was going to be the dream championship, Orange County championship. Yeah. And we upset Corona Del Mar that year in the semis and went on to meet Newport. Interesting thing about the psychological event of that, I knew that I had to peak to to win uh, against Corona Del Mar. And I also knew that if we shot all of our material to win that game, we'd have little chance to beat Newport because they were so strong and they were just itching to get to Corona Del Mar. And I, you know, you don't, you don't tell your team that, but you know, there's psychologically, you can only get up once or twice or three times to their peak. And after that, it's pretty hard to hold. Just like swimming, you know, you taper, you've got one good swim and maybe you can hold it there for a couple of weeks, but after that it begins to decline. Yeah. Yeah. So that taught me about the psychological and scouting and uh, what you can do. So that was my introduction then when I came into to Golden West and what I was going to live with. And I came on as an assistant coach, water polo, head coach of swimming. I really wanted to be head coach in water polo, but Tom decided. And Tom Hermstead was the coach and had won seven straight championships i was assistant coach for six of those and that was a good learning experience uh, i learned a lot from him about season planning and so forth 
plan, which is an important concept, how to plan the season. We yeah. go into that later. Absolutely. But he became a, a great uh, international referee. We're, we played at Cal State Long Beach together, beat FC, UCLA that year. We were co-captains. And I've been with him. He lives two blocks from where I am right now. <laughs> That's We've awesome. Been, been in Seal Beach all our lives and a uh, good friend. And uh, he was responsible for a lot of my success as well as, as I said, my family and my my parents. So you were assistant coach at Golden West from 77 to about 85. And then you took That's over, correct. You took over the... the uh, the head coaching position in 85. Now, I, I mean, we spoke a little bit off off air before we started recording, um, <clears throat> and I had mentioned to you that I, I was a player in the 90s, and so right. my best recollection of Golden West in the 90s was um, that was a really dominating time for Golden West, um, and I know that they're doing well now. I mean, the, the men are still doing very well Um uh, throughout, you know, state championships in Southern California. But uh, speaking of the '90s, I, I I remember some of those teams just being you you were transferring a lot of players to Division One schools, and um, coincidentally, some of those people that were playing for you ended up being on that Pepperdine 1997 national championship team. Um, yes, and. You know, I actually got a chance to play with a couple guys, Andre Doria at Queens and Lance Bannock and friends with Peter Yanoff. And you had a pretty impressive recruiting class. When when did you feel like things were really rolling for you as the head coach? Um, did you feel well, like once you took over, it was already rolling? Or, or when did no, you feel like you no, put your stamp on it? What happened was that when Tom decided that he wanted to uh, retire from coaching and be their athletic director, or continue with his international refing, uh, word got around that he was retiring and uh, I would be coming on as head coach. Well, being assistant coach, you know, it's like anything else. Uh, people look at it and say, well, yeah, he's assistant coach. So on and so forth. It, uh, it's not the same Tom Hermstead. And uh, we went through a lull. We didn't do badly, but we weren't winning a championship. We were still winning conference for the most part. I think I, I don't think we lost a conference championship during then, but we weren't on the top of the game that we had been when, he, when Tom won seven in a row. So it wasn't until 89 that we were able to get back up on the top by, uh, again, creating an air of confidence in our program, heavy recruiting. And, you know, early on when we when I first started recruiting there, you could only recruit within your own district, your own community college district. Outside was taboo. You couldn't. Yeah. And we got into a lot of recruiting wars over that. And uh, I know Flip was upset a few years because some of his guys – came up our way and, and uh, there was always the, the specter that maybe I'd recruited them out of their area and it was illegal and all that sort of thing. And same with Long Beach. Kind of thought we were stealing players and 
you get get into that type of thing. And then later they eliminated that. You could recruit outside the district, which opened things up. Yeah. But recruiting was everything. That, that, that's for sure. And there's a, a lot ways to recruit and ways not to recruit. <laughs> and so why don't we get into a couple of these questions really quick? Um, and I know that you, you know, you had mentioned that you were still going around and you were watching. I think you said your grandkids are playing water polo. Is that right? Well, after my wife passed away, uh, Maureen Stanford, her, her son and my son were best friends here in Seal Beach and they played water polo in high school. And they went, they were the buddies all the way through high school and UC Santa Barbara where they played water polo. Mm. So I got together a couple of years after Marilyn passed away. I was looking to find out about grief. How do I get through grief? And I called a number of people and talked to them. In fact, Scott Taylor is now at Golden West. His wife uh, is a uh, hospice nurse. And I contacted her and a number of other people who had lost spouses and tried to find out about grief. And I uh, got together with Maureen and uh, her grandkids now play water polo as well. Gotcha. So you've uh, so you've been able to see a little bit of been a, you've been able to be around some of the game recently. Um, and you've come from this tremendous background, um, really, where you the, the sport has probably exploded from oh. where it started to where it is now. Um, yes. So what I, I was, I was blown away. Yeah, I the, could imagine the numbers, the sheer numbers of kids playing water polo, and I, how gratifying! It's great. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. I mean, it must be really rewarding for someone in your position to be able to experience growth like that throughout your lifetime. Um, oh. Do you see, and what what do you think are the positives of that? What do you think maybe are the negatives of that, if there are any negatives? Well, I think the positives of it are our sport has uh, gone past the point, the point of being a comic strip, you know, where people used to say, oh, how... You know, how do you play that on horses? And then they'd laugh, you know, is that like water ballet with a ball? You know, it was kind of a a comic strip, really, in in the beginning, uh, if you played water polo. Most people had no idea what water polo was. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, so the positives have certainly blown that old theory away that it wasn't really athletic and, now people are saying, God, how do you guys, how do these guys stay up that long? And, you know, you get all the positive comments now. Yeah. I think on the negative side that I see is on the coaching side. Uh, there are a lot of young, very inexperienced coaches who are looking to make either some money or a name for themselves. And right, and right now, Club Waterpole, you can make a, a nice bundle of money. Uh, I was never paid for any club work I did, only in swimming. I got paid for swimming, coaching swimming clubs. Uh, I made made many, water polo, no. Now these guys get big salaries, some of them uh, up north now, full-time positions, working as a club coach. So that part's fine, but there's so many un- when I say uneducated, mean uneducated in 
psychology, in ethics, and even in uh, the fundamentals, how to teach fundamentals. I've seen kids come into Golden West who, who did not have a egg beater kick. You know, they didn't know what it was. They came from programs that are fairly successful. You know, how does that happen? So the negative is, I think that we had, we're, we're coming upon some some type of minimal uh, licensing and bonding of coaches, uh, which is important, and it's, but it's got to be more stringent. So that, and I don't know how the youth soccer works, but I suspect they do a little better with that with the coaching. Uh, yeah, I've had a I've had a couple of um, coaches, in, in particular Ricardo Azevedo, who is also a, a Long Beach State alumni, and um, right, and he went to Long Beach Wilson High School, and you right. know he actually had mentioned about creating a certificate program for our coaches, right. um, and just base kind of like referees, you know, level one, level two, level three, and yeah, when I look at your resume, I actually see that there was like a level three certification that you achieved in 1986. I, I'm not quite sure how, where or why that dwindled away in terms of uh, certificate. Um, but I, I do agree with you. And I mean, look, I'll just, I'll give you the other side of the coin. I mean, being a young coach, uh, when I first started off, I was 21 years old. You know, of course you think you know what you're doing and you think everything you're doing is right. And, right. you know, when you look back on your career, you think how many opportunities you missed in terms of winning games or mentoring or whatever it might be. I mean, there's a lot of missed opportunities when you're a young coach. Um, and I think the community as a whole, the USA Water Polo community as a whole, is starting to realize that very um, they're, they're, they're starting to take that a little bit more seriously now. And, and so you're seeing people in the ranks of USA water polo starting to like do clinics and they're starting to do a little bit more of like coaches education. And, but what, what's, what's interesting is that you can't get people, you can't force people to do these things. And, um, it seems like the people who are attending clinics like this, uh, are the same people over and over again. You know, it's like, it's no, you don't see that many new faces. Um, but there are, there are people out there trying to make a difference. It's just, I think when you tie and and I'll wrap it up on this point, but I think what, what you're saying and without putting words in your mouth is that when you tie coaching to a living, it kind of perverts it just a little bit. Whereas in your position being at, you know, the head coach at golden West, your success is not necessarily tied to a dollar amount. You're being you're successful because you want to be successful because you want to be the best coach you could be, um, and that's one of the benefits of being in a position like community college or you know like the head of a university is that you have a little bit of security. We don't seem to provide that as a society now at all, and there's not a lot of teacher coaches anymore yeah. that seems to be going away is that what you're what you've seen over the years yeah the, the teaching part is especially true you know i've always believed in the uh theory of attention to detail is the, one of the most important things you have as a coach you know every little detail uh, details make up the the uh totality 
And if you miss an important detail, uh, it hurt, it's going to hurt you and it's going to hurt the team. Uh, you know, little things like uh, it, when we get to the uh, area of uh, building a culture of success, uh, I can talk about that. But it's a uh, it's very, very important, and you're not seeing that attention to detail. Uh, I was watching a coach recently talking to uh, 14 and unders, and some of the kids were walking around while he was talking. Some of them were looking up. Uh, he did at least have the restriction, no phones. <laughs> During, now, this is before a game. Yeah. And, and, the, the lesson there is if you want their attention, then number one, you have to be down on their level. You know, if they're standing, you're at their level. Otherwise, if you're standing above them, uh, they, they're either looking at the sun or whatever. So you get down on their level, you make them take off their sunglasses, you make everybody look at you. And then uh, what I learned from the Army about teaching is you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them. And then you tell them what you told them. And the Army can teach people who can't, who can't do anything literally, technically, and six months later, they're firing uh, rockets, you know, yeah. because they have learned through process and steps. So here you are trying to tell the people about uh, a defense, and they're not even paying attention that you know of. You're just talking. And I, I, I walked around watching coaches meet with their kids, and it was almost universal. Hardly any of them demanded the attention. Uh, it was like well, they were letting people know that they were trying to teach these kids something. It was astounding. Uh, so let, let's sort of get into that, you know, um, this culture, because, you know, you can build uh, coaches can build cultures, but that doesn't necessarily turn into a championship culture. So let, let's be a little bit specific here about building a championship culture. And, and look, I'll preface it by saying this, um, speaking to someone like Dave Carlson, who's now the head coach at Los Alamitos high school, longtime coach, very successful. Um, uh, someone like Andre Doria, who people probably don't know who he is, but, I could tell you right now, that guy's one of the greatest players I've ever seen, ever. Um, and he was my teammate. And uh, competitive fire, really tough, uh, really mean. Nicest guy out of the water, but really scary in the water. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, these guys just would, you know, lay in front of traffic for you. Uh, and building, you know, they, they love you so much and they, they credit a lot of their life to, to you, uh, which I think, like I was saying before, is like what we all strive as coaches. We want that. Um, how do you get a guy like Andre Doria from Brazil and Peter Yanoff uh, and Lance Bannock to buy into this championship culture? You know, what is it that what are some of the things that you talked about? that you brought up that made you that made those guys buy in? Well, going back a little ways on that, I, I think the, the first thing uh, that I introduced them to is uh, what I call the levels of success. 
And if you're going to be successful in my program, number one, you've got to be on time 100% of the time, and you have to be on it. Anytime that you're not honest, I can't trust you. And if I can't trust you, I can't put you in a key situation. It's not going to work. And if you're not on time, it holds up practices. You miss something that you need to, to be a part of. So level one is just being honest and on time. Level two is being responsible for your actions and responsible for your time. And uh, that means in, uh, you indicated the other day that you you email all your your uh, players and make them respond back that they got the email about the week's uh, activities. We didn't have that in my day. We I just made them get a planner, made them fill it out, and that way uh, I eliminated all the questions and all the uncertainty. Where uh, a guy shows up late for a bus, the bus is gone. You, you learn pretty quick. <laughs> well, what, I didn't look at my planner. I guess it was supposed to be 8 o'clock, and I didn't make it. So making them responsible for their time and also for their actions, you know. You make a mistake, you don't hoist it off on someone else. You take responsibility for it. And the last level, which is the most important, is what are you doing for your team? What are you doing for your country? What are you doing for your environment? Reaching level three where you're outside of yourself. First two only provide you with uh, yourself and your success for yourself. Now, how do you provide success for the rest of your team? And so we just label those level one, one, two, and three. So if a guy came in and said, I got to go pick up John and Bill because they don't have a ride, uh, that's a level three action, you know, that type of thing. So starting off with that, I think helps tremendously. Uh, and eliminates a lot of the problems. But uh, uh, building that success comes with recruiting, with scouting, with the team building, you know, building a, a culture within the team of uh, comradeship, whether it be going out to team dinners once a week or other activities, playing volleyball together, doing things together uh, and getting that bonding. Uh, and then building a positive attitude during practice as opposed to a negative. You, ha you have to use negativity, no question. But a positive direction in, in workouts is very important. I see too many coaches that are during halftime, it's all negative, all negative. And the kids have their head down. They're going, oh, yeah, we know we screwed up. What can we do to improve now? You know, that's what they want to hear. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we know what we did wrong. Now, what, what can we do to get out there and change the thing? So building a positive image and then building a positive image of the school, at the school, you know, going around meeting with other professors, uh, getting a kid on the school newspaper, uh, showing up in team uniforms. We, I go back all the way to where when I started at Lakewood, I required the kids to get haircuts so that they were identified as athletes. And uh, there was a lot of blowback on that. But for several years, kids knew when they came in, they'd get a haircut, you know, yeah. get a buzz that, and uh, that sort of thing. 
Well, I mean, I kind of I wanted to quickly sort of recap these levels because I think this is really important. I think not only is it important in coaching, but I mean, obviously, it's important in life. I mean, I mean, and I don't want to be too cliche here, but you know, I, I think every coach, whether you're young or you're co- sort of in the middle of your career, you can identify with these three levels you know level one you know you're you're building trust and buy-in basically and and trust and being on time is is the buy-in if you're not on time then you're not bought in um yeah and then the the personal responsibility in level two i think that's where a lot of coaches nowadays in just the the way our culture is the way our society's become i think that's where coaches start struggling a little bit because you want to you want to hold a kid accountable, but you don't want mom and dad to come and, you know, yell at you because you're holding Johnny accountable. And I think that's where things have shifted a little bit. Um, but level three, I think, is something that a lot of people just don't even think about. And that is, you know, what are you doing for others, which will allow them to buy into you, which will in turn sort of spread out to the rest of the team. And I think that's something that is lost on, on all of us um, is just, it's, it's such a me, me culture right now. It's all about me that sometimes we forget that, you know, that little action of giving somebody a ride or, you know, give letting somebody borrow money for lunch or whatever. Those things are things that, teammates never forget i mean i could remember rides that i got i mean i could remember rides that i gave and and money that i borrowed from my teammates in my saddleback years yeah Um, yeah and that's what makes those times so great exactly Um, you know and and so you know as you're as you're building this culture can you think of a time where you were struggling with that could you think of a time that that maybe there was a team that and you don't have to be specific, but there was a team that wasn't buying in right away and you kind of had to fight them on it or was everybody just falling in line uh, during those, those years? Yeah, I'll go back uh, in just a second to the final year that we, we won nine straight championship state and on 10, the team literally folded up and fell apart and I'll I'll come back to that but going back to the three guys you talked about all three all three of those guys were pretty much level three when they came in yeah uh you know growing up in Brazil and and uh in Slovakia is entirely different than growing up in in the U.S. you know it was a struggle and uh they uh they uh, had to overcome some things. So level three was already in their blood, you mm-hmm. know. And David Carlson came in and he told me, you know, I, I saw I was the littlest guy on the team, but I was bound and determined to contribute. And he did. And it, when he was out of the water, if someone did something that they felt bad about or they got uh, the, the negative comment, he would build them up again and say, Hey, you go back in and do this. He was a coach. He was my second coach in the water, you know? 
And so that guys that already come in with level three can really be important. But back to that 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 building of that, I learned that years ago when I heard the prisoner of war tapes from Korea. And it turned out that our initial losses uh, from prisoner of war camps was much greater than any other NATO group. And it turned out that the U.S. soldiers, for whatever reason, uh, didn't have a code of conduct or a code of ethics uh, that they brought with them. And they were in freezing conditions in Korea. They were prisoners. And if a prisoner got, one of theirs got sick and uh, started defecating and throwing up, they'd put him outside. The Turks didn't do that. They kept, they kept each other alive. They worked with each other. They loved each other. And we lost some people. So the U.S. afterwards developed the U.S. Code of Conduct for Servicemen. And when I heard those, I think, how could our society have ever gotten to that point? Yeah. And that brought it to the forefront of, you know, even in athletics, you've got to form a brotherhood somehow. You know, and uh, so back to the point you were making about uh, losing the the grip on your team or the team losing the grip on reality or or what you were trying to teach. We had, and I'm not going to use, I don't want to offend anyone, but we had three young men from a different country and it was always a a, uh, struggle to get them to speak English. When things got going badly, they would speak to each other in their tongue. Now that separates the team. And uh, that's not good. So during that game, things started going bad. They kind of pulled off and they wanted to do it their way. And uh, the other guys wanted to do it their way. And there was no bringing them back together. You know, the, the we just literally fell apart. And I, I had going into that the attitude that uh, one, one foreign nationality is good, two is difficult, three is almost impossible. And we ended up with three. Uh, it just doesn't work. Uh, they all have to have a kind of a common bonding before they get there. Yeah. I don't know I act- if that makes sense. No, it does. You know, it's so funny because, and, and this is, we've had a several conversations up to this point, but, <clears throat> you know, I, I feel like in some ways I'm very much in line with how you think, even though I don't know you that well. Um, when I started at Concordia in 2007, um, I started that program from scratch. And one of my rules was you have to speak English. And it had nothing to do with, you know, this sort of nationalism, you know, American sort of thing. It was, it had nothing to do with that at all because in my, in my household, my parents spoke Spanish to me growing up. I mean, they're from Ecuador. But I felt like it was so important for everyone to hear what you were saying. So if you're complaining about me, the coach... I better be able to understand what you're saying. If you're complaining about a teammate, the teammate better be able to understand. And it was a it was two rules really: speak English and don't cuss. 
Those were the only two rules I ever really had. And, and I continue to have the no cussing rule and you know, the adults that I coach, they laugh at me. Um, but I just feel like it's just not tasteful to, to cuss. But the English thing was really, really important. It was really important because it, it made that 15th guy on the bench feel included. Um, they never separated themselves. They never made themselves bigger or better than the rest of the team. And it's so interesting to hear you say the same thing, that that was like the downfall of, of a team that probably could have won um, because I was right there on that same sort of mentality. Um, you And like you said earlier, you sort of have to find things that are going to help bond the team or create a brotherhood. Sometimes those things are abstract and artificial, Sometimes they just rally around themselves and they love you and they want to, you know, die for you. But that doesn't happen every year. Sometimes you have to, like, come up with artificial things that they need to rally around. I would assume you had to do the same thing. I mean, it's probably some opponents that you had to rally around uh, because you hated that other team. And, and that's what you guys were focused on. Yeah, well, that all is a part of, you know, when I down some things about the, the uh, culture of success is scouting and knowing your opposition is so important and sending your your teammates your team players out as an assignment you know uh, I see that Orange Coast has a game this weekend is there anyone available to go out there three guys yeah I'll go we'll go out and then to come back to the team meeting report what they saw you know who, who's who's uh, dangerous what kind of defense you think they're putting up, and so forth. So having them take part in the strategy and planning for the season, and I used to use the metaphor of a mountain when we our first team meeting. This is what our season's going to look like. Here's the mountain. Here's the top. There's the state championship. That's what we want to go for. We might end up on the side here at, down here at conference. We don't know. But this is where we're starting. At the bottom of the mountain involves, and then I'd go through the different training we're going to go through. Uh, first week, it'll be 90% physical training, 10% uh, fundamentals. And we go from that point week by week and show how far up the mountain we'll be going, uh, along with uh, we will, at this point, we'll be doing 25% 25% fundamental drills, 25% strategy, 25% physical, and a little mental on the side. And by the time we get up to the near the top of the mountain, we're doing a lot of psychological. We're still doing a few fundamentals. We're backing off the training. So they know how that is going to progress and what they're looking forward to. Uh, very important in, in sizing up the season at this time. So let, let me ask you this, as you're getting into that season stuff, how do you outline, you know, what, what were some of the things that you did to outline your season? Um, and assuming that your season started in the summer, you know, the official start was in the summer and then it kind of went into the fall. Uh, and then obviously you took a little bit of a break and then you went into swim season, um, you know, how did you prepare? Because let me preface it by saying this. 
you being at Golden West, you probably you probably played about thirty games a year. Let's just say mm. I, there yeah. were there were probably twenty of those games were probably blowouts. I would assume, and then there was ten that were probably really tough. You know the the Long Beach Cities, OCC at, at some point when Chris Oding was there, and and uh, uh, Saddleback had a couple good years. Um, Riverside had a couple good years, but you know, really, it was like you guys in West Valley. I felt like it's it seemed like it was you in West Valley uh, a lot um, during that time. You know, wh- how did you prepare your teams? What was the timeline for for your season uh, for men's water polo? Well, as I said, the the timeline was based upon coaching swimming you know it had to do with the amount of material that you were throwing out at the amount of physical training you were throwing out to them and then dropping off of that uh each week knowing from your scouting reports who you were facing you'd have to spend a certain amount of time on what they were good at and what they were weak at and you had to know every appointment because if you look past them uh, you can get surprised, yeah. and you can have some close ones. Uh, so I'm I'm not quite sure what you're aiming at here. I uh, maybe I'm not quite. Uh, well, I guess it's sort of like you know the first month, let's say August, was that like you're just heavy conditioning, and then you know like yeah. like let's say your practices are three hours. How did you structure your practices? Were you swimming a lot? Were you you know, I know you mentioned fundamentals a lot. Um, and then when did you start sort of tapering off? I mean, um, you know, if you started sometime in August, by the time, you know, you had to obviously get them to November. Um, you know, how much were you swimming? How much were you scrimmaging? All those types of things. Um, I mean, if you could remember, I know it probably changed year to year, but was there a certain timeline that you followed? Uh, throughout your coaching career? Like well, I kept a workout book every year and uh, and added to what I thought was worked or what I thought didn't work and kept refining my workouts. But I found that, you know, you can do too much just straight swimming. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of the swimming had to involve um, fundamentals as well. You know, so we're doing... Uh, 10, 10 50s on a certain interval. And then some of the 50s were done with uh, with a ball. Some of them were done, oh, egg, guy egg beatering in front, guy egg beatering behind, using various drills, but all as a part of the conditioning. Uh, just straight line swimming doesn't really work. It's got to be as a team and sometimes even uh, as much as you could on a clock. I'd have to go back and, and get more. I'd have to go back and look at some of my workout books, but I, I don't think I'm answering your question. No, no, you are. You are definitely. I mean, it's 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 always interesting. I mean, I think just going off that workout book mentality, I found that the most successful years I've ever had were the years that I wrote down literally every single workout. Um, yeah. And you sort of start going back in time, and 
it would be interesting to get those books out and sort of maybe publish them so for people to read yeah. because I think we we start running out of ideas yeah. uh, fairly quickly. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to a different question. Well, l l let me come back to that for just a second. Yeah, but go ahead. I was I was fortunate to have people who wanted to come on board and help me. Yeah, and if they had an expertise, I a lot of practices were divided up. Okay, Kurt, you're going to do two meter a two meter work with the two meter man. I got a goalie coach. You're going to go work with the goalies. And if I had three or four people on the deck, I could divide the practice up, starting with one guy doing the physical training, one guy doing fundamentals, and then strategy. So all of those things uh, were part of uh, workout training. I, again, I'm, I'm missing probably what you want to hear. No, no, no. This is exactly what I want to hear. I mean, I just sort of, like I said, sort of, I think, understanding the structure um, you know, sort of reinforces whether or not some of us are doing it properly or not. I mean, I mean, there were some years where I did a lot of straight swimming. I mean, we just yeah. did a lot of swimming. Um, and a lot of it had to do with how we needed to be conditioned to run a specific type of defense or offense. Um, well, and, and sometimes you sure just don't have the first, talent. That first month, you have to be careful of shoulders. That's for sure. Shoulders and knees. So you don't overstress them. You don't put jugs on guys the first day. Yeah. Uh, you know, that type of thing. Uh, so you, you do gentle conditioning for the shoulders and, the, and so forth and do a lot of ball handling and all that. I, I think that's what you're asking. Yeah, no, definitely. So I wanted to ask you about your, your championship runs of, of nine state championships in a row. And I, have to admit, I, I stole this from uh, Doria. He told me a story that um, you you yourself, uh, and I think we all get a little bit more emotional as we get older. Um, you know, all of a sudden a, a song could make me cry, <laughs> which yeah, I, I hate yeah, to I admit. I hate to admit, yeah. but it's true. Um, yeah. And he told me the story that before the state championship game, that you would give a speech and you would get so emotional, you just start crying. Um, and it, and it kind of, it made the guys so fired up because it was like showing some vulnerability, I guess. Um, yeah. and this is a story he told me and, and it's funny because I, that started happening to me when we started getting into these championship games, I'd start tearing up and, I always remember that story that Doria would tell me. Um, what could you tell me about, you know, some of those moments when you're about to play a championship game? What are you telling your guys pre-game? Um, what's the what's the mindset? What what's the thought process? Well, uh, for the most part, I think I go back to the trials and tribulations that we went through to get to that point. And here we are. And whether we win or lose, we're here. And all we want to do is walk away with our heads up uh, that we did the best we could do. That's all we can do. And if we walk away and say that was the best we could do. So that's what you're aiming for. But when you're citing the season, if you can cite individual sacrifices during that season, if you can cite 
events that, you know, pivotal events like we were behind on that game and somehow we sucked up this strength. I don't know how we did it. We're going to have to do it again today. You know, bringing the season back into light, living, reliving every victory and also reliving every failure. Uh, and knowing that for most of these guys, it's their last game. Yeah, and you and you you want to pay because we're only there two years in community college. Four years is different, you know. But uh, if I were in high school, I'd dedicate it to the seniors. You know, these guys have worked four years to get here, and uh, and you begin you begin to tear up because you think of all the four four previous years, how hard these guys have worked to get to this one point, what their parents have sacrificed, what they've sacrificed, and their time, and you know and you just build it up, and you can use a theme. Uh, you know, I've used all kinds of, of themes to do that. Uh, you know, I, I wish I'd have thought of that before you asked me. I have dredged up 63 years of what no, I No, I, 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 and I'm sorry <laughs> to put you on the spot with that. I just, something that I just thought of, actually, in terms of that, that those well, speeches. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because you, you – Different coaches have different approaches, you know. Yeah. Um, some coaches, you know, right before every game, they're talking strategy and they're just really trying to keep the mind focused on the game. Yeah. Um, some yeah. coaches are, you know, trying to talk about what's going to happen if we win. You know, like you're yeah. gonna, you're gonna, uh, you're you're gonna make history if you win this game and to me those things become all distractions you know they become um you're you you become uh, enamored with the outcome rather than the actual game that you're supposed to be playing and one thing that i always held on to and again this is third party from doria one thing that i always held on to was that um expression of sort of emotion slash love and care that you have for your players and it's not even about the game. And no I question. I always held on to that. And I mean, I heard this story in 1998. You know what I mean? Like, I I heard this story a long time ago. Um, and I always held on to it because it's the approach I started taking just personally in terms of what am I really focused on here? Am I really focused on this win? Or am I focused on the journey? Or am I focused on... And, and so... I. I I think I guess what I'm trying to get to is, you know, through the that vulnerability, do you see some power through being able to show that emotion to your players? Um, Do you feel like that's one of your strengths is just being raw and honest? You you just hit it right on the head, and it's something I always put in my in my writings to uh, the team. It's the journey, not the destination that's the most important thing and uh, what you've learned along the way. I mean, you hit it right on the head and I use that term all the time. It's the journey and here we are. And you'll remember the rest of your life, the bonds you made here today, uh, you're going to remember and boy, you hear them, you know, going way back. This is, I remember that day, you know, it's, unfortunately, a lot of these guys I just saw recently, you may have heard about uh, the Kobe's crash. Well, one of our players 
his wife was on that uh, wow plane and uh he was from the eighty nine team he has a band and uh I've been in contact with him and uh his uh experience there was it, his experience in that is 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 hard enough but we got together with him afterwards and it was a whole group of guys from 89 and the brotherhood there was unbelievable you know they they go back uh, there were eight guys there just sat down with him that was amazing uh what he's they all felt the empathy and they all felt his pain and uh, uh, I talked to him frequently and uh, Matt Mauser is his name he has a band and he's a great teacher and uh, Spanish teacher language teacher and musician and he, he actually worked with Colby but yeah, the, that, that the, makes brother, me... the brotherhood from that year 89 that was the first uh, first state championship those guys still hang together you know that that, that was their moment Anyway, that makes me sort of emotional just hearing that, you know, just because I don't know you. You only know that type of bond when you've been through something um, where you're just so raw and vulnerable and you've let it all out. They yeah. your teammates have seen every side of you, you know, it's. Yeah. Um, there's nothing left untold. And I think that's what creates a championship culture, you know, going back to like one of our original points, creating a culture. It's like, if you're not willing to, you know, show that emotion, I don't think you ever really get over the hump. And when I look back on teams that maybe weren't as successful, you could point to things like that, like maybe that they didn't get along as well, or maybe their parents didn't get along as well. Maybe they were just divided. Um, yeah. Maybe they were selfish, but um, you know, it didn't. That doesn't mean they're bad people. It just the chemistry wasn't there. And so, you know, you win the first one in '89. Let's fast forward to like the mid '90s. You know, I mean, it's hard enough to win one. It's really hard to win two going back to back. When you're in the middle of it, you're at like five or six in a row. I mean, do you well, feel like the team is just like it's almost expected at that point? Or are like how well, what therein lies a big danger. You have to say, you know, just because you're in Golden West and you put on green doesn't mean you're gonna win. You have to pay the same sacrifices of and uh work that the other guys paid it isn't going to come automatically you're going to step on the deck and people are going to bow down and, and lose to you you have to earn it every single year and we have to outwork last year and outwork the year before if we're going to continue on top but you know guys will say coaches will say yeah it's easy for you you're already winning no it isn't it's, it's not any easier recruiting you'll come up on guys well i don't think i can start there so I'm not going to go there. Uh, there are a lot of little things that <laughs> winning isn't necessarily guaranteed. You know, success uh, can breed success, but success can certainly breed failure. I'm yeah. convinced of that. So um, I've seen a 
lot of coaches win one and then think that, well, I'm on the top now. And then two years later, they were at the bottom. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's something that happens more often than not. I mean, it's, it's very rare oh, yeah. to, to win multiple. Uh, it's, it's more often that you're going to win one. And then, I mean, and I'll just look at my own experience. I mean, you try, you know, sometimes you try to apply the exact same things that you did one year to the next year and it doesn't work. You know, it no. just doesn't work. No, it doesn't. And, no. and, you know, at, one thing that I've learned over the last four or five years is you have to be very um, intentional about figuring out the personality of your team and the team you members. Exactly. If, and if you're not willing to go deep inside of the psyche of each player, I'm talking each individual player. If you're not willing to take the time to do that, I don't know if you could ever actually win. The teams that no. the teams that where I knew them the best were the teams that were most successful. Um, because you could trust them. Yeah. You yeah. knew they were going to follow the game plan. Yeah. You knew they weren't going to be out on weekends getting screwed up. Yeah. You could trust them. Yeah. Yeah. And so let me, let me ask you something specific. And this is something that, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't provide in my notes ahead of time. So forgive me for this, but, um, let, I'm just going to give you a scenario, you know, let's say your, your tie game fourth quarter, you call a timeout. What, what, what are some of the things that you might tell a team? Are you negative in the, in the huddle, I, I can't imagine you are. Are you positive? Um, what are you trying to get them to think about in those crunch time situations? Um, if if anything, I mean, are you are you just giving them a play? You know, like what's your philosophy on a timeout speech? I guess you're tied, and uh, you're you got your back up against the wall. So you've got to you've got to call upon some strength and ability that's in their inner core. And you kind of have to appeal to that. You know, we've been here before. We've done it before. Are you up to it? Can you do it? Reach down inside and find out what's inside of you. I mean, that's basically what you're pleading for. You know, mm-hmm. you remember this happened to us two weeks ago, and uh, all bringing back memories as well as okay here's what we're going to run you remember this and uh, <laughs> uh if we have time i'll tell you that this is a funny story uh you remember jeremy pope who went on to Pepperdine? yep very much from golden west well we were tied in a state championship match at merced and i think it was with grossmont and we had actually we really we had a goalie but he wasn't the best and we had to defend him most of the time and we had always practiced uh plays at the uh end of the end of the practice uh last quarter of the season we would practice plays some of them that we thought we might use others that were kind of fun to run they're just to keep keep them moving keep them thinking and some of them you had intent to use. Well, we devised one that was called a sub stack where at after a goal, 
you line up in a perpendicular line as opposed to a parallel line to the half, if you can feature this now. Yep. So one person in front of the other, last person near the goal, and the first person on the line. And what would happen then would, as the ball was put into play, everyone in that line with, with both arms out would splash, so we got all kinds of water up in the air. Then the last guy would go underwater to the left side of the cage, being a right-hander, or to the right-hand side of the cage if it was a left-hander, and would pop up. One of the guys would swim out to retrieve the ball from the goalie and then pass it down to the guy just emerging from the water and then pass it and score. And we practice that, and they love that. Well, here we are tied, and we're coming over the side, and I'm thinking, and Don Mahaffey was my, working with me, and uh, he's a great playmaker, and uh, he's thinking of what play we're going to pull out. And Jeremy's yelling, sub-stack, sub-stack, sub-stack. <laughs> so, I, you know, I said, hey, what, we're tied. What, what, what could hurt? You know, I mean, they're having, that's what they want to do. It's a little fun. So we ran it, and the goalie, instead of passing out to the outlet, and Jeremy was free as a, as a bird. He came up, and there was no one on him. And uh, the goalie tried to pass to him. It was short, and, of course, the, the opponent then picked it up. But the point was they wanted something that was fun, something that they knew if, they, if it failed, they were still in the game. Yeah, you know, they hadn't lost anything, and we went on to win it. But you know, funny little things. Uh, but if that play just, works, the momentum that that carries is. Oh yeah. You know, it. it yeah. I actually have a similar thing. You know, we had a we had a six on five, and we called this play that that we had worked on leading up to the playoffs. We hadn't run it at all during the season, and uh, it was fourth quarter, I think, CIF finals, and and it, and it worked. And I mean that that was it. Once that goal happened, it was like, okay, we're we're winning this game. That you can't come back from that. You know, there are certain plays that you run that just the momentum just it's it, it takes you through. But I mean, so running out of running out of time here a little bit. But I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. Um, Could I add something there? Yeah, go ahead. Malcolm Gladwell is a I I, I like to hear his podcast and his stuff. He has a, a book called The Tipping Point, really fascinating writing. And uh, I, I believe in tipping points in the game. I, I remember our first state championship with uh, uh, Cuesta. We had uh, a player from Brazil. Uh, God, come on, name. Uh, oh, shoot. You know, come to me in the middle of the night and I'll feel bad. But anyway, he was a great shooter. He, We were coming up to halftime. We were tied, and he came up to half and uh, shot from half with two seconds to go. Skip, bounce, high corner, scores. I mean, the place just went crazy. Wow. And... Uh, 
on, and he's an executive now with with. Uh, oh, come on, brain. Anyway, I'm sorry that I've unable to dredge up his name. Oh, that's all right. Was, that's all right. It was a tipping point. It was a tipping point. I'll definitely so, have to look up. You said that's a book by Malcolm Gladwell. Well, the tipping point is yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so. As you, you know, now that you're retired and, um, you know, sort of able to reflect back on, on your career, um, and all the things that you've been able to accomplish, you know, what, if you could go back in time to the beginning of your coaching career, what advice would you give yourself, um, to a young, a young Ken (laughs) getting into, um, getting into coaching, what, what would, what would be a couple things that you would give advice to? Boy, it's, uh, I would probably say it's a long journey and staying on the top of that is very, very difficult. You cannot, you can't stop learning. You've got to learn every day. You've got to continue to learn and expand your mind, whether it be attending clinics, reading more, attending more uh, games and thinking more about it, but never think you have the answer. You don't have the answer for everything every year. You've got to keep learning. Coach, um, I think we're out of time here, but I wanted to say Honestly, I'd love to come back and and do another sh- episode with you. I think we have so much that we can cover, um, and and I think there's a lot of people that are gonna love love to hear from you on this podcast. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time and um, you know just being so open and honest with me. Uh, it's really helped me a lot, and uh, you know you deserve all the credit that you get. And I could tell you just from I never played for you. Uh, I, I played against you. Um, you know, you, you coached against my teams and, you know, the interactions I've had with your former players has been, have been nothing but positive. Uh, one of those, you know, like I told you before, Carlson, uh, Peter, Andre, Lance, but also Kurt Bowman, who uh, was a, a center for you, went to UOP. His kids are actually playing for the club that I started here in Irvine. Really? <laughs> yeah, and his kids are going to be phenomenal. The gentle giant. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, and they all had such positive things to say about you, and, and, and I hope that I could, you know, create a fraction of what you've created over the course of your coaching career. So thank you for what you've done for the sport. You will. You will. You will. Thank you. I appreciate you that. Will. I'm I'm humbled and uh, thank you. I, I have nothing but time, so anytime you want to talk, not necessarily the podcast, but you want to just talk. Uh, I have this problem. Uh, how did you solve it? Uh, I'd love to talk to you. That's all I have is time. 